still, but I think it's still important that we understand being still before God and letting life itself and God's creation become beautiful by Him revealing those things to us. He can show us things that, that is difficult for God to show us in the noise and the fast pace of life. As we examine the Scriptures, we found that the secret to passion is not so much how much energy we end up with, it's how deep our relationship is with God. And it's really the passion of Christ that really enables us to see a little bit more clearly the passion that truly can come into our lives. Passion and enthusiasm is not really measured by how excited you and I might appear to be as a Christian. It may not be how prosperous or successful we are in whether it's in the, the natural realm or in the spiritual realm, nor is it how full we may seem to be with all kinds of joy and peace as we journey through life. Passion is found in the richness of a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, as we think about this passion and this desire to be renewed in our faith, I'd like us to look at another kind of discipline that most likely will not be seen as a discipline. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Now, right away, when we think in terms of the idea of discipline, we might think about, well, I've been bad this week, and so God's going to pull out his big belt. The kind of discipline we use in, in terms of that kind of language is that you and I, just as you would want to kind of think about, we're going into springtime now because the groundhog's out, and he's verified to us that, uh, you know, it's, it's coming real soon. I don't know which version you got of the groundhog. But either way, spring's coming in six weeks, whether the groundhog said it or not, which is kind of ironic. But when you and I think about the, the, our, our direction in life, spiritually speaking, and we think about whether it's our physical need to exercise, that's a kind of discipline. It's a, it's a, a structured approach to what we ought to do in our lives that will enrich it and make it more meaningful and uh, more healthy. Well, the same kind of thought is spiritually speaking. There's all kinds of things that that the Bible kind of touches upon throughout Scripture, but they're important when we apply them to our lives and, and, and personally work them through our lives, that that's what gives us life and vibrancy to the Lord Jesus Christ. But follow along as I read in Luke chapter 18. I'm going to begin at verse 9 and read down through 14. To some who were confident in their own righteousness... And looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Lord, we realize when we read scriptures such as these that 
our hearts tend to shift in one direction or another. We tend to either validate the way we believe and feel good, or we tend to identify in other ways and we continue to feel worthless. We feel sometimes caught between these two extremes in life, and I pray, O oh God, that we might not only understand the richness of some of these words here, but may we find the beauty of discipline in ourselves to let it be grace and grace alone. We thank you, O oh God, for what you attempt to do in our lives and to cause us or enable us to accomplish so many things for you. But forgive us for the times that we think we've done a pretty good job. Give us courage to trust that it's your grace that begins and it's your grace that will enable us to finish. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we probably do not think of the discipline of grace as a discipline at all. We tend to possibly value and appreciate the favor that God has put upon our lives. But we do not necessarily see grace as having any kind of responsibility. We may not always see grace as having any kind of uh, structure in developing a mindset that is founded and established on grace. Typically, the way grace is experienced and learned is that God does this unique work of tenderizing the heart and bringing us to terms of reality and truth, and he does that all by himself. But the problem is sometimes when you and I start experiencing real change and effective change in our lives is we sometimes begin to think like, well, we've, we're pretty good now. We've arrived at some kind of level, and grace is one of those things that well, that's what newbies need. It's the ones that are really needing God in some sense. They are the ones that really need grace, and we lose sight to the fact that we never get to the place where grace ought to lose its value, its longing, and its real purpose and power in our life. The biggest problem with passion and enthusiasm for God is and possessing a zeal that continues to move us and excel us is that we typically are thinking too much about what we can do. When we think of passion, we think about renewal, we think about excitement of God, that quite often that it gets equated and translated into, this is what I would like to do, or this is who I would like to become. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to improve ourselves or deepen our relationship with God. It's just sometimes we trip over the beauty of grace. We get kind of caught up in the need to say that this Christian life is a lot about performance. It's a lot about pulling myself together and living the way that I know that God wants me to live and what we truly want to do. But without the discipline of grace, most likely we're not going to get there, or worse of all, we might feel we're there, and now we've got a bigger problem we started with. The parable is extremely popular, particularly to study. <laughs> uh, it's one of those that is referred to quite often in the searching of scriptures, and we look at these particular ones, and we already know the right answer. We're not Pharisees, and so we don't even, not only do we have a tendency to push away the concept that there could be any Pharisee blood in us, but we really don't like the idea of being called a tax collector either. 
And so it's a great study text about it's those and those type of thing. And so we move on. But the other thing is that maybe we might apply this particular parable, particularly at least to other people. And somehow that allows that seed of pride to begin to rise within us. And so grace, once again, is something that other people need that maybe we don't need ourselves. Or maybe we might utilize this parable in thinking in terms of a common application, as we mentioned. It's really how you get saved. you got to set aside the Pharisee need, and you got to become a tax collector whether you like it or not, and that's how you get saved. And so sometimes that parable never really gets valued or appreciated by most likely the ones that it ought to apply to, and that's us who have begun the journey of faith. We've been following God Maybe we have been developing the disciplines we talked about. We've been enjoying worship a little bit more and experiencing more of God. Our prayer life is beginning to grow. Our personal quiet time is excelling. We've begun to get alone and spend times with God, and it's actually beginning to shape our life. We need to be careful. At that point, we need to humbly say, it's not what I've done that has got me to where I am. It's God's grace that has enabled me to experience Him as if I'm a child in desperate need of the comfort and love of my Lord. The point of the parable is really to teach us that it's like people like you and I who long the experience of God's true deep passion in a way that is fresh and vibrant, knowing it's Him and it's not me. Some of us have a a clear understanding of of how wrong the Pharisee is to think that somehow his performance or his duties have gotten him somewhere. And yet, as you and I journey through life and we not only cherish the importance of living a quality life, and we might even go so far as to spend a lot of time and energy reaching into the hearts and lives of broken people, that there's seasons when you and I might get a little frustrated. There's seasons when you and I might get a little overwhelmed. There's seasons when you wonder why some people just don't get it. It's that season we need grace once again to remember where you and I came from and how God truly brought us to where we're at. It really is an awesome experience of grace and that we realize this. Our salvation is truly grounded and established upon a grace. It's not anything that really you and I have done other than to simply respond to the Holy Spirit's work in our life. We simply have cooperated with God. He's enabled us to see ourselves a little bit more clearly. He's especially allowed us to see himself lifted up. And when we see Jesus lifted high, particularly on the cross, It brings that ability or the capacity to receive that grace. It's beautiful, it's precious to experience the grace that does that saving work in our life. But now let's look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. Through whom, well, we'll start with verse 1 and read 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
Our whole standing in God. Our whole standing in our relationship with God. We stand in grace. And it may be somewhat difficult for us, particularly if you have sort of been brought up in, in, in your, your Christian growth and uh, your upbringing in church, is that there seems to be a much stronger emphasis on what you and I need to do or what you and I should not do than it is to learn how to discipline ourselves in what God wants to do in our lives. It's difficult to explain because words seem to get us into trouble. But most importantly, it's the ideas that really get us into trouble. We certainly are not minimizing the importance of learning how to grow, but we must learn how to rest in what Jesus Christ has begun and what he promises to finish. And so the Apostle Paul is, is very strong in that emphasis about the grace. The grace is your standing. The grace is your assurance. The grace is your security. It's the grace of God that allows all those aspects of life to begin and life to continue to grow in our lives. It's a challenge to humbly allow that grace to simply communicate itself to the depth of our heart without some of us at one sense saying, but now I still have to do something or I have to be something or I have to accomplish something. And last week we talked about it. Faith without works is dead. And so it's very appropriate that having made that clear, that you and I need a face that gets out of the box. At the same time, we need a grace that that is our standing. We must stand and we must have our confidence not that we have performed like a Pharisee. I've tithed, I've given, I've served, I've accomplished. But somewhere within the beauty of the development of this life, I discipline myself to always remember it's God's grace, God's amazing grace, God's work in me. First Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12 through 17. We uh, come to a, a couple references when we think about uh, the Apostle Paul. He's, he's moving on in years, okay? He has, he has fought the good fight. He has finished the course. And he's writing this young man by the name of Timothy. And in some sense, he's communicating to Timothy that, his, uh, that the Apostle Paul's life is coming to a close. And in essence, he's given the apostolic authority or the responsibility of the church to a young man by the name of Timothy. And so Paul has, has certainly reached levels of commitment and devotion that certainly could get the appearance that he is all about good works and great service, which he is. But notice how he communicates as he's communicating to Timothy. These are the things that life is built upon and how it is shaped. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. That almost sounds like he's a little bit full of himself, okay? Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace, there it is, of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, here's a trustworthy saying, that deserves full acceptance. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. As we think in terms of the Apostle Paul, we say certainly he isn't the chief of sinners. He's not the worst of the worst. But that's what grace enables us to see. Paul isn't trying to dig a hole deeper. He simply learned the discipline that I will never forget where I came from. I will never forget the things that I have done. Do not just simply leave my memory. But my focus is not so much on my past, but it is anchored in the reality that it's grace that called me. It's grace that reached into my life. It's grace that opened my eyes. It's grace that brought me forth. And so regardless of our position in life, regardless of the patterns of behavior in our life, regardless of where we have been in the past, this life of grace continues to be grace that everything that is accomplished and every success we have and every growth spurt we have in our walk with God is based upon God's unchanging grace. In some sense, unless we see ourselves as a sinner, whether or not we ever believe that we are the chief of sinners, if we do not see ourselves as indeed a sinner, constantly need of the cleansing of a Savior, then grace will lose its effective edge. Grace might tend to be transferred into, well, that's for somebody else. But as far as my relationship, I am quite okay. It's performance that soon kick in. And you and I will constantly experience all kinds of various temptations of somehow thinking that where I'm at today is because I have finally taken a step, I finally uh, stood my ground, I finally do my part, and somehow then our security or our sense of worth is based on what I have done more so than what Jesus Christ has done. It's a discipline to remind ourselves that where I came from I know quite well. And what Jesus Christ has done through that and in that, I know that's quite well. It's grace. It's grace. We cooperate with God's Spirit. We, we try to keep in step with the movement of God. But the real strength, the power, the ability to grow is grace. It maintains its grace. 1 John chapter 1. Why is it difficult sometimes to, to uh, maintain this, this concept that it's not about my performance that gets me my stability and strength in Christ, but it's his performance. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I'll read verses 7 and read down to the beginning of chapter 2. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, 
and his word it has no place in our lives. My dear children, verse 1, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think probably one of the biggest hurdles or the difficulties we face is we still somehow believe that our relationship is based on our good deeds or our good behavior or somehow that that is the richness of the relationship. And though he writes saying that I would that you would not sin, he's teaching the emphasis that there's a lifestyle and a way to live is of maturity, but he never concludes that we have come to place without any sin. So one of the big hurdles is we tend to feel as if you get more points somehow by being more obedient. It's strange to think that it's the relationship is what keeps us in the, the love and the, the blessings of God. And we see that in the story of the prodigal son, as we, we would tend to believe that somehow the, the obedient one, the older brother, who stayed there and did what he's supposed to, would somehow be in a better standing, but by the time you get to the end of the story, it certainly seems as if the one who returns comes back with a heart change, but the one who stayed, his heart continued to move in the other direction. You and I must recognize that by all means that I'm certainly not endorsing or is anywhere in the scripture endorsing that sin is okay to play with. But it's grace that's the foundation. It's what allows Jesus Christ to, to do his work and to accept us and give us our position and security. But it's grace that enables us to continually be cleansed. A second thing that's close together with that is, is why is it difficult to, to not uh, uh, maintain or believe that it's our performance that gets us a better position or standing with God? Is quite often when we think of performance, the relationship takes second place. When we think about performance, we think about pretty much what we have done. When we think about relationship, guess what? All we have left is what he did. And so we think about that. You and I need to realize that quite often when we consider the, 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 the passion of, of a commitment and devotion to God, is a lot of times it's measured by what we can see in ourselves or in other people. Whereas the real standing before God is what he sees inside of us. And so it's important to know that the internal stuff, it's, it's easier to at least appear to be godly from the outside than it is when everybody knows what's happening on the inside. Because none of us ever get to the place where our thoughts don't tend to wander. None of us get to the place where sometimes our motives are not always so pure. No one ever gets to the point where their attitudes don't need to be adjusted once about every five minutes. None of us get to the place where truly the inner core of our lives is really in that right place. It's not our performance, fortunately. It's his performance. But as you and I begin to give ourselves and let God's grace not only save us, 
but also to sanctify us, then we can begin to experience the beauty. It's what he began, it's what he continues to do, and it's what he will continue to accomplish. But somehow within that concept of that performance, it continually keeps us uh, sometimes busy, maybe in the wrong places. This is why it's a discipline. It's a discipline of grace, of reminding ourselves or, or reconsidering uh, uh, that we are saved by grace. There really is no room for boasting in our lives. It is really His work, and we are His workmanship. It's God doing something unique and precious in us. Well, let's turn to Luke chapter 22. This is sort of in line with a couple things we touched upon when we struggle sometimes with the concept of grace. Luke chapter 22, verse 31 down through 34. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. Now you must understand something about the personality of the Apostle Peter. Most of us are well aware that Peter pretty well um, understood this, this need for performance. He really had great intentions. He had great plans. He really truly believed that he had come to somewhat of a, a pretty stable, consistent life of following Jesus with his devotion as high. His intentions are way off the charts. And here he is in Luke chapter 22, verses, 50, uh, I'm sorry, 31 through 34. Jesus says, now Simon, Simon, meaning Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. 33. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today... You will deny three times that you know me. I myself have preached a sermon on how to not be a Peter. It's difficult to try to look at this story and not say there's got to be a way that temptation won't get us. There's, there has to be a way to beat sin. There has to be a way that we are bigger, we're better. And that's a performance-driven relationship. It's a discipline of grace that looks at not only the story, but it looks at other people and it looks at ourselves in the mirror as well and realize if it wasn't for grace, when Peter goes down, he's not getting back up. But it's Jesus that is so committed to seeing him through to the finish line that there's going to be times that you and I feel as if we have this thing mastered. And to those of us who have been walking with God for several seasons of life, we always have a tendency or a proneness to believe that somehow things are going quite well. It's grace that enables you and I to succeed if we succeed. But it's absolute, pure, unconditional grace if you and I fail that we ever come back again. It's so important that the discipline of grace is always recognizing it's His performance, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what He has done in the past and He continues to do and does in the future is our hope and our strength. Most of us are well aware of the story. Peter didn't survive very well until one thing. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22 and look, let's look down 
at verse 61 and 62. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word that the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. It's actually, he wept uncontrollably. That's grace. Grace is not always the great victories we have. It's grace that looks at the victory of Jesus Christ. And it anchors upon that. And we wish that somehow that we could be better at this Christian lifestyle. We wish that we could be more successful. We wish that we could be more like overcomers and conquerors through Jesus Christ. But it's important to know that that victory is not that you and I ever really succeed. That victory is that there is one who's at the finish line. That he has won the fight for us. He has finished it for us. And the victory, in essence, is simply that we have confidence that regardless of whether we had a great week living great for God or we had an absolute failure week, we know one thing. It's the same grace that enables us to come through this because we're not in a performance relationship with God. We're in a personal relationship where he's a father and we are his children. Our hope is not that you and I figure out how to get back on track. The hope is not that you and I somehow pull ourselves together. The hope is that Jesus, what he said is, when you have returned, when you have restored. Now turn with me to the first letter of Peter, going toward the back of our Bibles to chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5. I want to pick up at verse 8 and read down through 10 and 11. And I want us to think about the scriptures we just read. Peter is told, he's warned, you're going down. But when you come back, now you can be useful. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him. Stand firm in your faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same suffering. Verse 10, and the God of grace, God of grace, underline that, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. This is what communion's about. The Lord's Supper is part of the plan that Jesus established for us. It's not a time to come and celebrate how good we've been this week. It's really a reminder of Jesus, who has never lost a battle, he's never lost a fight, he's never lost a soul, who humbly says, you got me. It's our weaknesses, it's our sins that only magnify the beauty of our Savior. 
And what you and I need to realize is Peter is talking about after the fact. He did that. He failed. He's back. The secret to a passionate life is not so much by looking over your life and seeing how many victories you've had or how much success you've had. Quite often the greatest passion, the deepest richness of love for Jesus Christ is the times you went down and he pulled you back up. Certainly, we don't encourage and, and, and uh, cause us to say, well, let's see if we can create problems for God. Paul talks about that. God forbid that though uh, your, your sin abounds and grace increases all the more. But the beauty of this great salvation that Jesus has given is that he has already planned, not so much that you and I will fail, but in spite of our failures, he has guaranteed you will succeed. That's the grace of God. It's a discipline to learn how to trust and receive the beauty of unconditional, undeserved, unmerited grace, and yet at the same time saying, Jesus, I don't know why, but because you brought me back as of today, my passion for you is going to soar to the roof. I'm particularly trying to encourage some that you might feel that you've crossed that line. You've stepped across and committed some unpardonable sin. You've done the unthinkable. Or somehow the secrets of your life have been ripping your heart out because you feel like there isn't a soul you could tell about what really is working deep inside of you. Jesus, he knows all about those. And his purpose and intent is to save us. But it takes discipline to believe. Now, it's not my performance. Though we might have heard that, we may have felt that the voices in the past have always told us, if you finally get your act together, you might get to heaven, or at all, you might be loved by God. It's not based on your performance and mine. It's simply a statement of faith that he has paid it all. It's humbling. It'll break us. It might feel as if it takes us down. It might feel so uncomfortable to simply trust that it's all about Jesus Christ. But that's the discipline of God's grace. Will the ushers come forward at this time? Just wait till I pray. Before we serve it, I simply want to make one statement. If you're here today, and you have acknowledged in your mind and in your heart that you know we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've come to a place in our life that we can once again just remind ourselves and yet pray because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us all of our sin and unrighteousness. That our faith in what Jesus Christ has done, that's the performance that sets us free. We come believing. Let's pray. Father, let this broken bread, these crackers, remind us that it's because of what you have done for us on the cross that not only guarantees that assurance that it's paid for, but it's the secret as we partake by faith that that salvation experience, that forgiveness becomes mine. I pray, O oh God, that as we are reminded, 
that we might allow the bread to work its way down into our body. May we have that image and that remembrance in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone hold the cracker till we're served, and we will partake of that together. The night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Just before he goes to the cross, and before they really understood what all of this meant, that image was left in their minds, that somehow, simply taking what he gave, and holding what he was about to do, he says, this is for forgiveness of sins. And I trust that we realize that we can't do anything about this other than to simply by faith say, yes. He said to his disciples then, including Judas, take it, eat it, but do one thing. Remember me. Let's pray. Father, we understand that concept of suffering and pain, but sometimes the power of the blood seems to be rather confusing to us. We know from scriptures, Lord, that you taught us that 
the life is in the blood. And because of who you are, Lord Jesus, it's the blood of the Son of God. We know, Lord, that you've taught that there's forgiveness only in that blood. And we praise you. Not only change our hearts, O oh God, but transform our minds. May your name be honored. May we remember the significance, the beauty. May you cleanse us as we confess. May you transform us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone, please hold the cup until we're all served, and we will celebrate the cup together. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus not only established a means of reminding his followers that the blood is the power of cleansing. And it not only cleanses us of the blemish against our performance card, it changes who we are. It cleanses and it purifies. But the beauty of what Jesus did is he's communicating the cup not only of covenant, that it's not a simply an emotional moment that allows us to be connected with God. It's an agreement that God has made, a binding covenant that cannot be changed. It's so much greater than a contract. A contract is an agreement between two people making two different terms. 
our salvation is an agreement that he made without any terms. It's important to understand it's grace, it's grace alone. But Jesus paid a huge price so that we could have that. It's the discipline of always remembering it's not what we've done. It's everything and what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we hold the cup high and we celebrate. What can we do but to humbly just say, Lord, thank you. That's the beauty of grace. It's unmerited. It's undeserved. It's unfavored. We know we're unworthy. But he himself invited us. He looked at his disciples. He said, drink. All of it. Every one of you. He included us all. The only way we're disqualified is to not humbly say, I'll take it. Father, we pause once again, acknowledging that what we believe, we trust to be the truth. We thank you for a great salvation, particularly a great Savior, a Savior who loved us with such passion, and somehow through that covenant relationship, we are clean. Though we may not always feel so clean, or feel so great, or feel so confident, or such a great disciple, but Lord, we trust that when you live in us, it's finished. We thank you, Lord, for that salvation and for the life that you've given. May we, by faith, celebrate in what you and only you can do. In Jesus' name. Jesus said, drink, all of you. Do we have a song of celebration? Let's stand.